back with brothers and sisters who love the Lord, but have a passion for God and for ministry and for the gospel. And so it is always an honor um, to be here and to mount this pulpit. Thank you, Pastor Taylor. Thank you, Pastor John, for the privilege, uh, for the singular honor to proclaim God's word to God's people. Amen? So y'all ready? Yeah. Okay. So um, before I, I move forward, let me just give you some sort of ground rules a little different this morning. I know many of you are familiar with my preaching, but this morning, um, Pastor Taylor has given me the task of presenting to the church a sort of a theology of work from our text, right? So it's going to be less preaching and more teaching. And if you're familiar with my preaching style, it's interactive. My teaching style is also even more interactive. <laughs> what I mean by that is that I may actually call on you and ask you a question. So I take the Socratic method a little bit. And, you know, if I know your name, uh, then you're probably in trouble, Scott. <laughs> but even if I do not know your name, sight, I will still call on you. So I'll be like, hey, brother, like, you over there with the striped red launcher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to call on you. I'm going to ask you for your name. I'm going to ask you, you know, to, to give us an answer. But I'm hoping that we can interact with the text this morning as we sort of uh, try to divine what God's purposes are for work and how we work in, in, in our community, at our jobs, in our homes, um, also in the church. Okay? All right. So I'm going to lay about like three pillars. I want to almost give like a three-legged stool of what work is, a, a broad framework. I'm going to try to build out a broad framework of work. And then I'm also going to try to sort of answer one of the pressing questions that we get a lot, especially for young folks and people that are about to graduate. And, you know, they tell you, well, what do you want to do? What are you going to do next? I hated that question when I was coming out of school. And like, well, do what you love, you know. And if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> you know, we'll see if scripture backs that up. Um, <laughs> And, and then I also, at the end, I present to you uh, basically a theology for Monday morning, a practical theology for Monday morning. How do we now apply this biblical framework, this biblical theology of work for how we work, right, uh, from Monday through Friday? And if it's unfortunate for you, if you're like a doctor or something, Monday through Saturday. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're in, starting in verse 4, and um, you've already heard read into your hearing um, through verse 17, I think, or verse 18, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I actually want to take it all the way to the end, and you're familiar uh, with the end. I, I'm not going to read everything. It is essentially when God said it is not good for man to be alone. He needs a helper. And he then causes a sleep to come upon Adam. He takes a rib out of Adam, forms his better half, you know, and then <laughs> presents her to him. And man says, wow. <laughs> now that's what I'm talking about. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman. That's what I call my, my wife, woman. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let, let's, there, there are three things to notice about our passage here. The first thing that we see um, is, especially from verse 4 through 17, is that man was made for work. 
You've heard it said that man was created to worship, and we know, um, I think John Stott or some other scholars say that actually the pinnacle of creation wasn't man, it was worship, the Sabbath day, and when he rested and God delighted in all that he had done, essentially, and gloried in himself, right? Worship, man was made for worship, but what if I told you that man was made also for work? Early in Genesis chapter 2, the narrative declares that there are no shrubs or plants, right? In verse 5, because there is no rain. And what else? What's the other reason? There is no man yet to work the ground. So it's important to observe that even before God is finished creating, Genesis teaches us that one of the reasons that God will create human beings is to do what? Work. Work. And that is related to the command that he gave human beings to subdue the earth, right? And have dominion. And as the narrative continues in our text, God then creates man in verse 7, and then the Garden of Eden in verse 8, and then he places the man where? In the garden, right? And after some additional details, this thing is repeated in verse 15, and then it reads, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to do what? Work it and keep it. And this repetition is key for us. It indicates that, that, that work indeed is a future of the very narrative before. It is, is a future, in, in fact, it is a purpose for which God created human beings. And thus, it is a central part of human flourishing. We don't, we, we don't tend to see that. Often, especially when we look at the image of the uh, of Eden, and I don't know if we have like Sunday school books or or any, uh, in here, but in um, in my kids uh, section, they have a kids section at First Baptist, and they have this huge poster of like the timeline of Jesus' life, and one of them is like Adam and Eve, and you see. You know, these two light-skinned people, they're just, out here, they're just out here in the garden, and they're just chilling, and they're feeding each other grapes or uh, apples, you know, talking to the giraffes, and just, they're just hanging in straight up to accident. And, 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 you know, this is the image often that we have of humanity. We think that this is what humanity was created to be. And perhaps some of y'all do that. You know, y'all just... Hang out and do nothing. <laughs> but really, that's not the picture we have in the scriptures. That's right. Instead, we have a picture of work. We have a picture of activity that is at the very root and core of what it means to be human. And it is at the root and core, as we'll see later on, of what it means to be human in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Notice, first of all, what the text shows us about the root and core. God has been showing us how he's created, right, the universe step by step by step. Now, at verse 5, there's no rain, no, there's no bush on the field, no plant is yet sprouted. Instead, there's mist coming out of the ground. Why is that the case? The text says that because there was no yet man to work the ground. So what's the point? Why is that important? Well, the point is that the whole of creation is waiting for humanity. That's right. The whole creation is waiting for man to come and work Mm -hmm. the ground. Mm -hmm. And what does God do? He creates man. Out of the ground, out of the dust of the ground, he creates a being, then he breathes into this mud, <coughs> dust, golem creature thing, right? It breathes into the breath of life so that this being is now both part of the creation, 
He has a body that is constructed out of destructible material and also distinct and set apart from the rest of creation because he bears the breath of God, indeed the very image of God. Amen. And then we get to verse 15. God plants a garden and he commissions man to work it and keep it. Let's break those two things down. The first is what? Work. Work, okay? So God put him there in the garden to work it. Notice God didn't simply give Adam an already completed garden. He says here, enjoy it. No, no, no. God creates the beginning of it. And tells Adam, I want you to maintain this. I want you to till this. I want you to expand this. Work is a part of what it means to be a human being. When it comes, you know, some people hate their jobs. I got some of those people where I work. <laughs> right? They, they, they hate their jobs. But it bears asking of those people, do you hate your job or do you hate work? Mm. <clears throat> And it could be that you hate your job because your job is legit miserable, okay? <laughs> but if you hate work, then you're hating what it means to be created as a human being in the very image of God. Because why does Adam work the ground? Because God worked the ground. Why is Adam a gardener? Because God is a gardener. Okay. Why is Adam creative? Right? God brings to him all the animals and he says, name them. And he just names them. Right? I mean, who comes up with Tasmanian devil? What? Maybe that's not really what he... But, but, but he's, he's creative. Why is he creative? Because God is creative. I mean, look at the entire universe. Look at the cosmos. That proceeded out of the mind of God. Who thought up the rainbow? Who thought up the great Leviathan? Who thought up all of these wonders and beauty of our universe? The creative mind of God. And in that way, we image God. Why does Adam work? Because from the work of creation to the work of salvation, God is at work. work. So he says work. And then the second part of what he gives him to do is what? Keep it, right? Keep it. Take care of it. The word to keep it gives the implication to protect it, right? You will protect the garden. And this is the idea of conserving, of using these things right. We haven't been good, let's be honest with ourselves, mm -hmm. the past centuries, mm -hmm. we're conserving the natural resources and protecting the natural world that God has given us, Right? And scripture is replete with God's anger towards that. Actually, with people using resources and just depleting the resources. I'm studying Habakkuk with, with a college student. And I noticed in Habakkuk in, in uh, chapter 2, God goes after Babylon for completely using up all of the uh, lumber of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon, right? And they would just go in there and cut down the trees and make their siege works and whatnot to go and conquer other places. And they were not replanting the trees. And I was like, yo, God is a tree hugger. Did y'all know that? <laughs> They were not replanting. They were just depleting all the resources. And what God is saying, we need to keep it. But there's also something else in this idea of keeping. If you understand what's coming up next, 
You should hear that threatening foreboding music. There's a soundtrack. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's, it's, everybody do that. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. You hear that foreboding music. God told Adam to protect the garden. And that's precisely what Adam does not do. Hmm. Adam is responsible for expanding Eden out over the entire universe. Is responsible to keep anything evil from coming in. Adam should have. When he saw a predator approaching his bride, speaking to her words that seek to destroy her, Adam should have driven the snake out of Eden. Come on. But instead, the snake drives Adam out of Eden. That's not the way it's supposed to be. He was supposed to keep it, to protect it. The second thing I want us to notice about our text, when we look especially at the latter part of it, 18 through 25, you've heard it said, the, the, the second thing is that marriage was instituted for work. You've heard it said that marriage is work, that marriage takes work, but what if I told you that marriage was instituted for work? That one of the purposes of marriage is work. Genesis 2.18 reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper. Helper corresponding to him. The question this raises is, what is the help for? Some, some of course, see it as a remedy to the problem of loneliness that's experienced by man because of his solitary humanness. But rather than being helped to solve the problem of man's loneliness... In the context of our narrative in Genesis 2, leading up to verse 18, the help is for the work that God has given man to do. So while companionship is a wonderful future of marriage, the explicit reason in the text that God creates woman is to help the man fulfill the work. The work that God has given human beings. That's to say that fruitful labor Labor is a central purpose of marriage. And the focus on work in the context of marriage relationship, it contains an important pointer to the very purpose for which marriage was ordained. I mean, practically speaking, a married couple, they're able to accomplish together what neither could accomplish as effectively on their own. So they work together towards the task that God has given them. Right? Married people become closer companions, and their companionship now enables them to be more effective in the work. I thank God for my wife. I could not do what I do. I got five, when I was praying this, I just kept, I got five streams of work. I got work in the home, because of course my wife and my kids come first, right? And I got to work. I got I to help out at home. I got work. At job, my day job, I'm an attorney, and it's not like, you know, something I could just bojangle in, right? <laughs> I got to work, because these people out here are crazy, and I got to keep them out of jail. Third, I, I, I got work in the church, and we'll learn more about that later. I got work in the church, right? I got work in the ministry. Like, praise be to God, I get opportunities like this to, 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 to preach, right, and to teach. I got schoolwork. I'm in school. Right? I'm finishing up my seminary degree, hopefully this year. Pray for me. <laughs> I got community work. I'm on boards. And, and, and I actually want to be light and salt in my community. I got five streams. 
Like, it's crazy. Y'all, I, I know, I'm, I'm crazy. Yes, my brother back there can testify to the insanity of it all. And I can't do it without my wife. That's right. Supporting me, backing me up, coming in with this shortfall, right? Thank God for my wife. I need y'all to thank God for my wife. Come on now. Amen. And praise be to God, I like to think that I help her too in her work. The work, the different streams of work that she has, right? Work at home. She has a full-time, high-powered job. Now she's a big boss in the city, right? Uh, um, she she works in the church. She has a ministry. Where she cares for young women as well, and, and she pours and teaches into their lives. And all the, I, I like to think I am my wife's biggest uh, um, cheerleader. Right. You know, when when some, we were talking the other night about like, you know, how it's weird how ladies sometimes they don't ask for that raise. Right. When it comes to negotiating uh, um, the salary, they, they versus men, they're more timid and, and whatnot. But no, I tell my wife, girl, you better go for it. Ask for it. Big, you know, shoot for the stars. Maybe you'll land on the moon. Right. I, I tell her to go for everything that she is capable of going after because God has instilled within her certain gifts to bless our community, to bless uh, our, our people around her, to be light and salt. I mean, she's amazing. And I say, go for it. And I cheer her on. So in that way, we are working together for the very purposes of the work that God has given each of us. That we can't do it by ourselves, but together. One will chase a thousand, but two shall do what? Chase their ten thousands. Praise be to God, marriage was instituted for work. And then the last thing I want us to see from this passage is that work is good. What chapter are we in, by the way? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, right? So 2 comes before 3. Three. And if any one of y'all are familiar with Scripture, I know you are because you get sound preaching and teaching in this church. <laughs> y'all are Bible scholars out here. What happens in chapter 3? The fall. So if 2 comes before 3 and we see work happening in 2, that means work comes before the fall. Oh, wait a minute. So work is not a product of the fall, which means that you can't blame Adam and Eve for having to go to your job. (laughs) Work is not a result of sin. Work is a part of God's original design for humanity. Right? Work is good. And remember, when God created work and created all these different things, and he ended, and he said what? It is good. Very good. And God even had much bigger plans in mind for this work. Adam was to have dominion over the garden, and he was supposed to expand that dominion over the whole earth, right? And then by producing godly offspring, teaching them to work, Adam and Eve are to subdue all of creation, right? And this is the idea of turning chaos into order. That's what God did, and he gives that same mandate to Adam. Adam and Eve are to turn the whole earth through hard work into the Garden of Eden. This doesn't happen by magic. It's concerted effort. And we see in this 
what scholars call the cultural mandate. It was Calvin that first referred to this in the Institutes as the cultural mandate. That having created the earth, God commissioned human beings now, not only to conserve the environment, but also to develop the potential of the earth and extract its resources and use it for the common good. Nature is what God gives us in the created order. Culture is what we do with it. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, I love the way John Stott put it. There's horticulture, there's agriculture, there's apiculture. I had to look that up. That that does with bees, right? (laughs) These are all human works. Nature is raw materials. Culture is commodities manufactured and prepared for the market. Nature is divine creation, but culture is human cultivation. That's right. And this work and this dominion over the earth was part of God's original design, plan, and purpose to fill the whole earth with his glory through human work. And so, so God tells Adam, you're to work on the ground, you're to protect the ground, but there's a snake. This is why I don't like snakes. I have a de- my wife can attest that I have a deathly fear of snakes, okay? It's biblical, exactly. Thank you, sister. It's biblical, yes. You get me. <laughs> and then that snake, the snake wants to come in and say, you don't have to work for all of this. You can just take it. And that brings us to the next pillar of our framework. I'm not going to dwell on this too much because I trust that um, Pastor Taylor and Pastor John are still going to talk about this in chapter 3. What we have was work before the fall. Now we have work after the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Can someone read that for us? Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19. Who's got it? And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see here sin enters the picture. <laughs> And work becomes cursed. And because of the fall, work is hard. Now it involves sweat and toil, thorns and thistles. In other words, stress and overtime. In other words, horrible bosses and mundane meetings. I mean, sometimes I have these meetings, I'm like, this could have had... been had over a phone call or one email. Why are we in this meeting right now? (laughs) Because work has become cursed. (laughs) Because of the fall. You hate your job. There's stress from the job. Terrible co-workers who don't do work, apparently. And you got to do all the work. <laughs> Your boss is not the most competent. Like, how did he become the boss? <laughs> because work is cursed. But while work has been cursed, it is still good, y'all. It's important to see both the goodness of work and God's original creation and the struggle of work 
under the fall. If we see only the good, we'll be frustrated when things don't go as they should. If we only see the bad, we'll have a hard time doing our work to the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Work is not all good, but it's not all bad. It is part of God's good creation, which has been tainted by the fall. And God is at work to redeem work. That's right. And that brings us to the third pillar of our framework, the redemptive work of Christ at the cross and its implications for work. So, work after the cross. We have work before the fall, work after the fall, and work after the cross. Work is redeemed. God sends himself. God takes upon himself a human nature who lives and works. That's right. Who sweats and bleeds, who ultimately gives up his life. He pours out his own blood. He cleanses from all our sin. Is raised from the dead, defeating death forever. He brings us through union with him into everlasting life. Praise be to God. You can work and work and work, but you cannot work for that. That's right. Come on. You receive that. That's right. You can earn and earn and earn, but you cannot earn your salvation. That's right. There is nothing you bring to the table. It is all the work of God. Amen. Come on, that should make you shout and praise God. That you ain't got to work for Hallelujah. it. God did all the work. And he presents to you this gift of everlasting life. So Jesus of Nazareth, This Christ of God comes and does the work. And all you have to do is believe and confess that he is Lord. That he has been raised from the dead. And you receive him as Lord and master over your life. And if you confess and if you believe, you'll be delivered from condemnation and damnation. But you cannot work for that. You've got to stop working. And you have to receive it. He did all the work. In fact, he said on the cross, it is finished. But the interesting thing is that in redeeming us, Christ also redeemed and transformed work in two distinct aspects. The first, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Someone read that for us, and then somebody else get Colossians 3, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Who's got that? Just raise your hand. Who wants to read? Yes, sir, Daniel. Who's got Colossians 3.17? Somebody else. Yes. Colossians 3.17? All right. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Daniel. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, and whatever you do, and whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Amen. So we see in this work is no longer a necessary evil. It is now a calling with great spiritual significance because it's a chance for God to be glorified, right? Mm-hmm. Even this idea of calling, the Latin is voca, right? And where we get vocation, right? So your work, you don't have to say, oh, you know, I'm called to the mission. You could be called to be a farmer. Mm-hmm. You could be called to be... Um, a garbage man, yes, that could be a calling. You could be called to be an architect. That is a calling itself. Calling is not just restricted to men of the cloth That's right. or work in the church. 
in all of our endeavors, those are callings, right? So now work is a chance for God to be glorified. When we show up at our jobs, we are there for the glory of God. Whatsoever you do, do everything for the glory of God. God wants to be honored in what we do and how we do it. That's right. That's the first aspect. The second aspect is that when we become sons and daughters of God, the scripture says that he puts us to work. God breathes into this clay vessel and, and makes him into a living being. What does Jesus do? He gathers his disciples up and he walks around and breathes into all of their faces and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit drives us to work. Because everybody in this room, in this sanctuary, has a gift from the Holy Spirit. Everyone has a labor within the life of the church that the Holy Spirit has given to you to serve Jesus Christ and his body. So he puts you to work. Not only are you faithfully working in your jobs that God has given you throughout the week, not only are you working in your households, protecting and caring for your family, you are also working within the life of the congregation in the particular way that Jesus has given unto you. Work. And just like we manage and govern and protect and work the land and resources God has given us, we're to work within the church, within the congregation, to guard it, to protect it, to keep it, to keep the doctrine pure, to keep the missional fervor burning so that the gospel may go forth Amen. now and in the future. We are called to work in the church. So now we have this framework. I hope y'all are with me. What's the first one? Work is good. Yes. What's the second one? Work is cursed. 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 And the third one, work is redeemed. redeemed. So we see here that, that biblical framework of work, but it begs. What if I don't like my job? What, if, what about this idea, do what you love? Or do what needs doing? Now again, that, that, that same framework, before the fall... There was no dichotomy, no false dichotomy in creation. In creation, there was no separation between do what you love and do what needs doing. God is doing what he loves. When he declares that his creation is good and very good, he's celebrating, he's enjoying, he's approving and delighting in his work. Yet God is also doing what needs doing. His work isn't only for his pleasure, it's also for the enjoyment of his image bearers. His creation is good and very good. And it's not only because it's perfect, but because it is perfect for us. So as God's image bearers, we work as he does, right? But then after the fall, everything, you know, breaks up. Now, our relationship work is broken. It involves thorns and thistles. And that means we tend to expect too much from work. That the do what you love ethos expects too much. That's right. Right? That we not settle on work until we find fulfillment and passion in it, even if it is self-driven and self-focused. See, the problem with the do what you love ethos is that in the fall, our loves are disordered. That's right. We love wrong things. 
or we love right things in the wrong way. So we expect too much, but also we tend to expect too little. The, the do what needs doing expects too little because this ethos is crippling because it allows us to deny that which we cannot. Our desires, our affections, our passions. So now, what does Christ do in redemption? Now it gives us affinity and opportunity. In the cross, Christ returns the union of do what you love and do what needs doing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy that laid before him, he did what? He endured the cross, despising the shame. So there was joy that was going to happen, right? He wants to redeem us. But he had to endure something before he got to that joy, right. right? He had to endure the cross. So as a practical matter, that means sometimes we got to endure some things in order to get what we want. Mm-hmm. I tell my daughter this, like, you got to do your homework. You don't like school right now. You don't like it. But that is what you got to do in order to get to what you want. Mm-hmm. Do what needs doing. <laughs> In order to get to the joy, it is not separate, it is both, right? And so we see as a spiritual matter, God is reordering and reshaping our loves to make us increasingly like Jesus. It's a work teaching us to discern and mature our affection so that now what we love is also what he loves. And what we need to do also gets us after the glory of God. Amen. Amen. So now, what does this all mean? How much time do I got, Pastor? Go, 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 go. All right. Okay, so he said go, go, go. That's, that's not all me, y'all. That's, that's me. So how should a biblical theology of work, biblical framework of work, change what we do on Monday morning? How do we glorify God in our work? The first thing I present to you is work hard. That's right. Be the best employee, the best manager, the best associate you can be, the absolute best. Seek to be known as the most honest, the most humble, most ethical, most competent person in your field. Do this not to advance your own career, but to honor God's name. Whatsoever you do, do it unto the glory of God. If you want to see your coworkers saved, but you have a habit of showing up to work late, of people being annoyed with you, of not doing your job, best believe that your witness will be compromised and God will not be honored. That's one thing I tell my college students. Like your first ministry in college is to get the grades. Like don't say, oh, because the church, you know, I'm not asking when it says don't forsake the gathering. It doesn't mean you show up to church for five nights a week. That's not what it means, all right? Like, if you're doing all that but forsaking your studies, God is not honored in that. Your first job, your work is to get that A or B or C. You need to, you need to work hard because that, in fact, supports your witness. How do you witness to your professor, right, to your coworkers, if you're out here getting D's and F's? Like, no, for real. How do you witness your coworkers if you're out here on Facebook in when you're supposed to be working? 
on Amazon shopping when you're supposed to be my my office manager does that man it is so annoying and I'm just like why and and like people come through in the office I'm like everybody can see that she doesn't even hide it I'm like come on man be more discreet even if you're gonna do that but you dishonor God in that way work hard because God is glorified when we put our whole selves in our work with a view towards pleasing God, not man. God is glorified when we plan diligently for the future. God is glorified when we honor our bosses, our superiors, and submit to their authority. God is glorified when we treat our co-workers with kindness and respect. God is glorified when we are honest, even when it hurts or prevents us from getting ahead. God is glorified when we expose fraud or dishonesty or unethical behavior. God appreciates snitches, right? Do not believe what it says. Okay, no, never mind. Y'all didn't get that. It's all good. Work hard. The second thing, don't expect work to be great all the time. Don't think that just because you love Jesus, everything's going to work out. Sometimes your job stinks. It sucks. Your coworkers are terrible. Sometimes you miss your quota. Sometimes you lose a client. Sometimes you get Fired. My wife and I, we were both fired on the same day when we worked for family. <laughs> it was political. Right? Sometimes that happens. But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love you or that God is punishing you. Sometimes these are the inevitable results of a fallen world. Remember that work is cursed. It's got thorns and thistles. Work doesn't always work the way it should. So now what we need to do is have a God-sized view of the holiness of work from creation, but also be realistic about what the fall did to it. Because Jesus hasn't come back yet. What that means is that God is glorified when we avoid complaining or grumbling even in the less-than-ideal work situations. Because best believe God can redeem that work. Is it not scripture to say that vengeance is the Lord's, right? And that even when your enemies hurt you, that you respond in kindness, and in that way you're pouring, what, coals on their head? Have you seen that image? Like, everyone will be kind to you and kind to you, even though you're terrible, and you say bad things, I'm just going to be kind to you. And that way we honor God and glorify God. We have a realistic view of work. The third thing you need to do come Monday morning is to learn and obey the Ten Commandments. I love this literature. I wasn't expecting to know that we we're going to process with the Ten Commandments, right? We need to learn and obey the Ten Commandments, especially the fourth one. Pop quiz, what's the fourth, fourth commandment? Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. See, Pastor, you, you didn't have to, like, tell him. I was just trying He's to help him out. that kid in class, right? <laughs> that just tells the answer before. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. The thing is, you've probably been breaking this commandment your whole life. I know I've broken it. Now would be a good time to stop. <laughs> Rest is a deeply spiritual thing. You talked about it beautifully last week, Pastor John. 
And I hope you all remember that sermon and your need for rest. God intends rest to be a regular part of the weekly rhythm of life. And then this constant go and plugged in of modern life, we forget the art of resting. That's one thing I, 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 I you know, this is one thing I help my wife with. Because my wife, she's a workaholic and she likes to work. But I'm praying for her and the Holy Spirit is helping her. My wife doesn't know how to do nothing. And, you know, and rest doesn't mean you do nothing per se. You know, now my wife is taken to gardening. Right? For example, I think it was John Stott that said that for those who work with their mind, you rest with your hands. For those who work with their hands, you rest with your mind. And, and I see in that way how she's resting. For me, I just like to do, like, nothing. <laughs> right? I have developed the science of doing nothing. <laughs> That's how I rest. <laughs> I can't reveal my secrets. Do Do nothing. But the idea is rest is is important. And actually, it's the best thing you can do for your employer. It's the best thing you can do for yourself, for your career, and for the glory of God. You need to set apart time in your week when you're totally unplugged. Your cell phone is off. You're offline. And you just rest. Take a really long nap. Maybe you'll go home after church and take a nap. Worship with other believers like you're doing now. Take a walk. Read a good book. Go outside. Enjoy the beauty of God's creation. Rest. And I feel bad for, you know, doctors and first responders, you know, because they, they're always, like, almost around the, on the call. But there's also, you, there's a way you've got to work in that rest or you will break down. I mean, God did not create the human body to go, 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 go. Indeed, he built it in, rest. It wasn't because God needed to rest, y'all, on the seventh day. Like, God doesn't get tired. He, does, he never sleeps, right? He's not weary. That's what Pastor John talked about last week. But he did that for you and also for his glory. Right. And whatsoever you do, do it unto the glory of God. So that means even in your resting, you can do it to the glory of God. Rest. And the fourth and final thing, learn to pray the Lord's Prayer. Another pop quiz. Let's recite the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, Father hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We become what we pray. When our prayers focus on our needs and our agendas and the ways we want God to bless us, we become self-centered, myopic people. And so to save us from ourselves, Jesus gave us a pattern for prayer that keeps our eyes on the Father's name, the Father's kingdom, and the Father's will. And so using this pattern, it will help us remember that work, like all of life, is about God and not about you. Pray the Lord's Prayer before work and after work and during work. Not to get God to do something for you, but to get yourself into a gospel-centered rhythm of life. Because God is glorified when we refuse to make work and money our idols. That's right. 
When we say, give us this our daily bread, that, that means you working? That's not what gives you your daily bread. It is God that gives you your daily bread. God is glorified when we trust him to provide today what we need for today. And that tomorrow he will also take care of that. God is glorified when we live simply and give generously. God is glorified when we approach our work prayerfully. And so the work goes on and the labor goes forward. Do all to the glory of God. And indeed, let us work both at home, at our jobs, and in the church to the glory of God. Amen. Let us pray. Amen.